We'll look at John chapter 8, verses 37 through 47. We're continuing on in our series, The Gospel According to John. And this morning is not one of those pretty passages. Um, It actually gets quite ugly in Jesus' interaction um, between himself and the Jews. John 8, beginning at verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your Father the devil, and your will is to do your Father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, sober passage of Scripture. It reminds us of the seriousness of sin. It opens our eyes to the opposition against Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. If you do not give us ears to hear, we will be deaf. And please, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to understand. Give us wills to obey. Father, we need Your help. And I pray this morning that Your Word will go forth with great power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. And we ask these things confidently in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul mentions that in the 1970s, One of the leading golfers on the professional tour was invited to play in a foursome with Jack Nicholas, Gerald Ford, who was president at the time, and Billy Graham. After a round of golf, the golfers came in, and one of the professional golfers' friends asked him, well, what was it like to play with the president and Billy Graham? And the golfer let out a string of curses and said, I don't need Billy Graham shoving religion down my throat. And the golfer turned on his heel and went towards the practice tee. And his friend just was thinking to himself, wow. And he's watching his friend and he's practicing on the tee and he's just pounding balls and his face is all red and veins are popping out of his neck. And after a few moments, he finally calmed down a little bit and relaxed. And his friend noticed this and his friend went up to him and said, 
sounds like Billy was a little rough on you out there. What did he say? And the golfer finally admitted, well, actually, he didn't say anything about religion. I just had a bad round of golf. (laughs) R.C. Sproul comments, astonishing. Billy Graham had not said a word about God, Jesus, or religion. Yet the pro stormed away after the game, accusing Billy of trying to ram religion down his throat. How can we explain this? It really is not difficult. Billy Graham is so identified with religion, so associated with the things of God, that his very presence is enough to smolder the wicked man. Holiness provokes hostility. And I would only add to that that sometimes holiness provokes murderous hostility. I wonder if anybody here this morning, 10 years old and younger, can tell me who the first martyr of the faith was. Yes, Daniel? Stephen, close. Anybody else want to try? How about the first person in the history of the world who was murdered? How about 17? (laughs) Abel, and I call him a martyr of the faith because he was killed for his religious convictions. This is what we read in 1 John 3, 12 and 13. John says, We should not be like Cain, who was, note this, of the evil one. We'll come back to that in a minute. And murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Isn't that a great question? Why did he murder him? Why did Cain kill Abel? He tells us, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain killed Abel because Abel offered up sacrifice to God. God accepted that sacrifice. Cain offered sacrifice to God. God did not accept it. All Abel did was live a godly life. We might say in our context, all he did was get up on Sundays, go to church, worship God. He would wake up early in the morning, read his Bible, pray, try to honor God in what he did with his time, his talents, and his treasures, and Cain couldn't stand it. So he killed him for no other reason than he was righteous, and he can't stand to look at his brother who was righteous. So we killed him. Now notice what John goes on to say. He says, and this is the application, Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. That's my basic thesis this morning. Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised if the world hates you. And too often, we, we are shocked. And we're surprised when the world is antagonistic towards Christianity and the things of God. Why are we surprised? We're not supposed to be surprised. John tells us not to be caught off guard when the world is intolerant of Christianity. And Jesus told us not to be surprised. Turn ahead to John 15, verses 8 and 9. Or excuse me, John 15, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says to His disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why does the world hate you, Christian? Because you have defected. You've become a traitor. And you've gone to the other side. You've joined the enemy, Jesus Christ. And because you're connected to Jesus Christ, their hatred towards Jesus Christ is now extended to you. And Jesus says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. It hated me first. And now they will hate us together. And notice the strong word that Jesus used. They hate you. Not just have a little bit of dislike towards you. Not just they can't relate to you. They hate you. That's a strong word, isn't it? How many of you kids have used the word hate and, you, and your parents say, don't use that word? Raise your hand. Yeah, look at You know why your parents have said that? Because hate is such a strong word. So if you say, I hate broccoli, that's a little strong. <laughs> And if you say, I hate another person, they're really going to be upset because that is a very strong word. So we should be very careful about using the word hate. We should only hate sinful things. Murder, rape, those kinds of things. We need to be very careful about what we hate because it is a very strong word. But Jesus uses it. He says, the world hates you. The world hates despises you. So brace yourself. That's what's coming. Don't be surprised when it happens. Now, to understand the world's hatred for us, for Christians, we need to understand the world's hatred of Jesus. Because that's where it originates. The world hates Jesus, so now it hates us. Now, where does this hatred come from? Let me set the stage for our passage this morning by asking this question, just a hypothetical question. Let's say that God took upon himself flesh and blood. And God, the Spirit, did that because he wanted to come to earth. And he wanted to communicate to mankind. And he wanted mankind to know of his great love for the world. He wanted the world to know that even though they rebelled against Him, even though they'd broken His commands, even though they'd given the fist, He wants the world to know that nevertheless, He loves the world. And He loves the world so much that He wants to set the world free from its bondage to sin. And He wants to infuse in their lives Love and joy and peace. He wants the world to experience life in all its fullness. Let's just assume hypothetically that that's what God wants to do. And that's the message that He gives the world. How would the world respond to this absolutely wonderful, glorious message? You know, we don't have to guess because we have it recorded for us. The world would respond, crucify Him, crucify Him. Is that not astounding? That's how the world would respond because of its hatred towards Jesus. Look at our passage. begins in 37. Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. 
Notice that you seek to kill me. Now, we might ask this question. Well, what is it that Jesus had said to bring this upon himself? How has he provoked the crowds that they have this desire in their hearts to kill him? What has he said? Well, let's back up to verse 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, you're walking in the darkness and I want to give you direction and I want to give you the light of life. Life in all its fullness. That's what Jesus offers. And they say, kill him. Kill him. We don't want to have anything to do with that. And then just before 37, Jesus says in 34, whoever sins is a slave to sin. And He says, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus says, you're slaves to sin, but I can set you free. And they say, this is wonderful! Who doesn't love freedom? Right? Look what's going on in Egypt. Everybody loves freedom. We don't like to be under tyranny. We don't like to be under dictates. We love freedom. And they said, yes, give us freedom. This is great. No. They said to one another, let's kill this guy. For offering freedom. For offering life. Now, notice the answer Jesus gives at 37. He says, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Now, that is a tremendous understatement. In other words, Jesus is saying, you seek to kill me because you hate my word. They hate it. They can't stand it. They hate it so much. They want to kill the messenger. They hate it. Look at verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, says it again, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Again, he tells them the truth. Their response, this is great. We love the truth. Everybody loves the truth. We're seekers after the truth. They hate him. They want to kill him. 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. They can't stand it. They have no place for it. They don't like it. They don't want it. Their response is to kill Jesus. And I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, this morning, we have to stop being naive. We have to stop being surprised by the world's response to the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel. There is no neutrality towards Christ. I, I think the perspective we often have is in this camp over here, we have children of God. They gather together on Sunday. They worship God. They love Jesus. They sing. They would sing for hours if you would let them. And then we have another camp over here, children of the devil. They, they hate the truth. They hate Christians. They hate God. They would kill Christ if they could. And then in the middle, between these two extremes, we have the vast majority of, of mankind. And they're kind of neutral towards the things of God. They're kind of indifferent. And they really haven't made a decision one way or the other. It is not what we have. There is no middle camp. There is no neutrality. Jesus said, Matthew twelve thirty, He who is not with me in this camp over here is against me in this camp over here. He does not gather with me scatters. Jesus made it very clear you're in one camp 
or the other. In 1 John, we're told that there are children of God over here and there are children of the devil. Those are the two people who exist in the world. That's how the world is divided. It's not Democrats. It's not Republicans. It's not Bears fans, Packers fans. It's Christians, non-Christians, children of God, children of the devil. The Bible couldn't be clearer. Now, I want, to, I want to ask you a question about your experience. And for the moment, just put aside your theology. Your theology. Put aside free will versus bondage of the will. Put aside Calvinism versus Arminianism. And just ask yourself this question. And you could kind of conduct an experiment, if you will. Monday, you, you could go to work. And let me ask you this. If, and many of you know from experience, if you were just talk to one of your co-workers who isn't a Christian and you're standing around the water cooler, let's say, and you said, you know, I, I, I went to church Sunday. And, and you stated as positively as you want. Okay? You don't, you don't have to be negative like I am, you know. You're a child of the devil. Uh, <laughs> just state it as positively as you want. Say, you know, can, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm just... Man, I'm just, I'm just so excited about what I have in Jesus Christ. Can I just talk to you for a moment? Do you know that God, God loves you? Do, do you know that He sent Jesus Christ to redeem mankind so that we could have eternal life? Do, do you know that? Stated however positively you want, what kind of response do you think you're going to get? What, what kind of response? I, I'm glad you told me. You know, I, I can remember when I, when I first became a Christian, I heard the gospel and I went back to a pastor of a previous church and we, we played racquetball together. And, and then I said, how come I never heard this? I said, this is wonderful. And, and he said, well, you know, God used our church to prepare you until you were ready. And he was true. I didn't realize it at the time. And when I became a Christian, I, I was working in a factory graveyard shift and I thought, this, this is so wonderful. I, I just, I can't wait to tell my coworkers about the difference that Jesus Christ has made in my life. They're, they're going to be excited to hear this like I was. They're going to thank me. What kind of response do you think I got? You, you know what kind of response I got. They weren't interested. They didn't share my enthusiasm, my excitement. You see what I'm saying? What does experience tell us about the nature of man? You know from experience, from experience alone, you know people are antagonistic towards the truth, towards Jesus Christ, towards the things of God. And there's a reason why you and I don't witness more than we do. We would love to witness. We love Christ. Most of us in this room would raise our hands. We would love to talk to people about Jesus. We would love to go over here, Dominic's, and tell all the workers about Jesus Christ and those who bag our groceries. And then we'd say, now let's go to the gas station. Let's talk to all the people over there. And let's go over to Julem. And let's just talk to everybody. And then we'll go throughout our neighborhood and tell them about Jesus Christ and how great God's love is. We would love to do that, wouldn't we? Why don't we do that? Because people don't want to hear it. They don't share our enthusiasm. And they hate the things of God. Now, this is what I want you to notice as well. They hate, I'm using that word carefully, children. They hate 
the things of God. And this is what we realize right away. As soon as we engage people in a conversation about the gospel, what rises to the surface? That hatred, that antagonism, that enmity. And we recognize it just comes up. We recognize it. And what do we do? We back down because we know where this is going. I don't know about your experience. If it's different, you, you let me know. But my experience tells me people are not indifferent. They're not neutral. They are downright hostile towards the things of God. They do not share my enthusiasm. They are not excited about the things of God. They hate the Word of God. Why do they hate the Word of God? Because their father is the devil. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. What's implied about your father? That is the devil, right? Look at the response, 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. Again, he's implying that their father is the devil. And then in verse 44, he says flat out, You are of your father the devil. If I can use a boxing analogy... Jesus twice jabs him. (laughs) He implies your father's the devil, your father's the devil, and then he gives them the right cross knockout punch and tells them flat out, you are of your father the devil. And he lays into them. Interestingly, Jesus backs up this statement that they are of their father the devil, which, by the way, they never deny. They never deny it. He basically offers them two proofs to show that they are of their father, the devil. First of all, he calls them murderers. 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he's already said twice, you seek to kill me. You seek to kill me. And now he says, you're just like your father, the devil. He's a murderer. The reason why you want to murder me is because you're just like your father, the devil. He's saying that their murderous intent towards him originates from the very pit of hell. It's a demonic desire that they have towards Jesus Christ. And then the second proof he offers that they're of their father, the devil, is the fact that they hate the truth. He goes on and he says, he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. 45, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Again, see? devil does he's a liar liar from the beginning has nothing to do with the truth and you're just like that because i tell you the truth you don't want to have anything to do with it you don't want the truth whatsoever so he offers them proof that they really are of their father the devil 
Now, notice what he said at the very beginning. I skipped over, but I want to come back to it. Verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Here's Jesus talking about unbelievers. And he says, let me tell you about your will. Let me tell you about your heart. Let me tell you about your desires. Let me tell you about what dwells in the core of your being that drives everything you do. Your will, what you want to do, is your Father's desires. That's a strong statement. They want to do. They want to do of their own free will what the devil wants to do. Murder. Hate the sin. Or excuse me, hate the truth and just live a life of sin. That is their will. One commentator said, By nature we are Satan's slaves, volunteers in the kingdom of darkness. That is our condition. It couldn't be any clearer. Last week we saw we are slaves to sin. Anybody who sins is a slave to sin. And here Jesus states the same thing, but using stronger language. He says, you unbelieving, your desire, your will is to do your Father's will. That's where men and women are outside of Jesus Christ because they are children of the devil. Now, why do I emphasize this? For a number of reasons. First of all, I emphasize it for this reason. If we have believed in Jesus Christ, if we are now children of God, we need to understand and appreciate and glory in the deliverance that God has brought to us. Ephesians 2. To understand good news, sometimes you have to understand the bad news. Ephesians 2, Paul writes to these Christians, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Notice what he's saying. Very strong language. The spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. The spirit of the devil is at work in their lives. And he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says that's where you were. Dead in your trespasses and sins, following this world that hated God, being controlled by the devil, following your evil passions, lusts, and desires. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. 
not by works, so that anyone can boast. We were dead. God raised us up. God delivered us. And when we understand that we have a greater appreciation for how we have been set free, we have a greater reason to praise God for our salvation. And we realize, I did need grace. It wasn't just up to me to make a decision. I needed the grace of God. And this brings me to the second reason. We need to understand this so we understand when we witness to people, when we evangelize, what is it going to take to bring about their salvation? Let me tell you what it is not going to take. It is not going to take human cleverness. It is not going to take, boy, if we could just marshal the right arguments. Maybe I need to study apologetics a little more. That's okay. Study apologetics a little more. But you need to realize that in and of yourselves, you are not going to bring that person to Christ. They're dead. They're blind. They're enslaved. They need deliverance from God. So how does it work? 2 Timothy 2, 24 and following. Paul, Paul says to Timothy, those who oppose you gently instruct. Or in another place, Paul says, speak the truth in love. In the hope. This is so important. In the hope that while you do that, while you gently instruct, share the gospel, tell about the great riches in Christ Jesus, hoping that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That's how it works. We have to be ready, 1 Peter 3.15, to give a reason for the hope that is within us, praying that God will work as we talk to that person. And that's why often we back down. And that's not necessarily wrong, because you know what will happen if you kept going in a conversation about Jesus Christ and the Gospel. You know if you kept going, that person would just get madder and madder, and it might even break out into a fight. So this is what you do. You share the gospel. You pray that God will work. And you watch and you see, is the Spirit working? Is the Spirit bringing about conviction? And again, let me remind you that we really do need the Spirit. In John 16, as we'll see, I don't know, a few months when we get there, Jesus said, it really is good that I go to heaven because if I go to heaven, I'll bring another helper and He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin because they do not believe in Me. Notice, it is the Spirit of God who convicts people of unbelief. If, if we could do it on our own because people were in kind of a neutral position trying to decide which way to go, the truth is we wouldn't need the Spirit. We could say, that's okay, Jesus. You don't have to send the Spirit. He can stay in heaven. I, I can do this. We can't do it. Only the Spirit, using our words, can bring about that conviction. We can't do it. Now, many of us try to be the Holy Spirit, right? We try to bring about conviction. Many spouses tell me, my, my husband, my wife, you know, they try to be the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit. Salvation really is by the grace of God. It's the only way that people will see. God has to work mightily. And it's important to understand this for, for one other reason as well. 
if we understand that God does the work, then we ask this question. What means does God use to bring about this salvation? What, what means does, does God use? Because if it, was, if it was up to me, if I thought I could manipulate this, you know, I would all, try all kinds of clever techniques, emotional appeals. But that's not what God uses. I ask, what, what does God use? He uses the Word of God and prayer. It's one of the reasons why I'm committed to expository preaching. It's one of the reasons why we'll come to next week and we'll pick up at verse 48. And then we'll just go to the next chapter and the next chapter. This is what God uses. God uses His Word, even when it's uncomfortable. That's what God uses. And God uses prayer. At the top of my prayer list, I, I, have, I have a verse and I begin just as a reminder, and I, I write down Matthew 9.29, this kind can come out only by prayer. And the context of that statement is the disciples. Someone brings Jesus, a demon-possessed person. The disciples can't drive it out. Jesus drives out the demon. In private later, the disciples ask Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus says, this kind. And it's a reminder that there are different rates uh, different ranks in the demonic realm. And he says, this kind, this fierce kind, this stubborn kind cannot be driven out by anything. Nothing works but one thing. Prayer. Jesus is saying, this kind comes out only by prayer. Your only hope of this kind of deliverance is prayer. Why? Because only God by answering our prayers, can bring about that deliverance. And we need to understand this is the church. And when the church understands this, you know what will happen? We'll begin to gather together for prayer once again and not rely on our marketing strategies. We will pray. We will preach God's Word from beginning to end because we'll understand this is what God works. This is up to God. We can't do this. So we'll proclaim God's Word. We will pray. We will evangelize. And we will look for the Spirit of God to do a work that we cannot do. Salvation is of the Lord. We should take that literally. We should take that seriously. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, for those of us who have been set free, we thank You. Some of us, when we became Christians, we didn't even realize the bondage that we were in. We only later understood how enslaved we were to sin and godlessness. Father, thank You for delivering us. And Father, we pray for those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we think of what we read earlier in John 6, 44. That no one can come to Jesus unless you, the Father, draw them. Father, will you draw them through our words? Will you draw them as your word goes forth? Father, open the eyes of the blind. Father, use us to bring about the deliverance of those who are children of the devil. Father, use us to set them free so that they can experience life in all its fullness. And Father, may we realize this is a work that You have to do. 
But we ask that we would have the privilege of being used by you in this great work of salvation. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.